This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 106 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Jeremy Kai, the founder and CEO of Italic. Italic is a marketplace that offers high-quality products at low prices by connecting consumers straight to top manufacturers. Founded in 2018 with the idea that customers shouldn't have to pay a premium just for a label, Italic seeks to create a world where everyone can afford to live well. In this episode, Jeremy shares his entrepreneurial journey from growing up in Chicago with a family working in the manufacturing business, to starting two companies in high school, to taking a leave of absence in college, to building his first venture-backed business, Fountain, to launching Italic. He talks about the two types of buying behaviors, how he's created a service culture, the importance of focus, and how he's raised over $50 million from investors. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates of when we publish. Don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. Follow us on Spotify or you can check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm excited to hear your story and building Italic. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Lee. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've been seeing you guys grow from the sidelines. I'm very excited to hear the backstory. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm here to share it all. And so where are you calling from right now? So I live in Park City, Utah, but the team is all over the place. We have um, an office in SF, an office in LA, and then two over in Asia. So uh, kind of jump between those. Um, well, when, when the world permits, but right now, stay put here. Did you grow up in Utah? I grew up in Chicago, uh, just a suburb out of Chicago. Went to school out east in Boston and then found my way eventually to, to Utah by accident. Um, but I was in SF, uh, China and, and LA prior to, to moving here. So what were you like as a kid? What was childhood like growing up? So I had your very stereotypical immigrant childhood experience where my parents moved here uh, with very little money. 
were very ambitious and wanted to pursue the American dream. So my mom uh, was the entrepreneur and, and founder in our family. She started not a tech company, but an old school manufacturing business 30, 40 years ago um, when together with, with her brother. And over the years, my dad actually ended up joining um, her. So my mom was really the, the, in many ways, the financial head of the household. Nice breadwinner. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think it's actually a pretty, you know, common story with, with founders. For myself, at least, you know, we were, my, my sister and I were kind of pressured from a pretty early age to, you know, go and, and do something great. So for me, I, I tried to manifest that in many ways, um, you know, tried to be good at swimming, at tennis, at, at uh, chess, and, and frankly, I was horrible at all of those. So, uh, and also not the best student either. So I think um, what I personally got a lot more interested in kind of came towards the end of high school where I tried a whole lot of stuff to get into a good college. Like what? My nickname in high school was AP Kai because I had the, I had the record, I think, at the time for most AP classes taken by a student. You're saying that your nickname in high school was AP Kai because you would sign up for AP classes, but not actually probably finish them. You just signed up for all of them? I was a good student by the standard set, but I was not excellent in the sense of straight like A's, A pluses across the board. I was kind of more like, B, B plus, A minus. Okay, I was a good, I was a good student. Okay, <laughs> I was an okay student. But to clarify, I wasn't good enough in the competitive sense of, you know, going to um, an Ivy League. And I think that really, actually, in my mind, like, was the start of a lot of the. Okay, if I, if I'm not going to do that, then I have to do it. Like, I have to manifest that that somewhere else. And I think um, that's where, like, I guess you could say I, I went down the the kind of founder journey um, a little bit more where, okay, if I can't play sports, I, I can't be a good student um, or, or excellent student, you know, then, uh, then here's a way where the, the, the playing field's a little bit more lo uh, level. So, and of course, I'm very lucky to have grown up in a supportive, you know, founder friendly entrepreneurial family of, of my own, but. Like, did your mom encourage you like that? This is a job you should have is like, you should think about starting your own business was, or did you kind of see her from the sidelines and say, that's what I want to do? Yeah, I was very much inspired and both parents really never directly forced me to, or, or wanted me to go down any path. I would say like, I'd want to be a lawyer and it'd be very supportive. If I want to be a car sales. That was my first dream job, a car salesman. Like it was directly inspired by, I think their own journey. I love that your dream was to be a car salesman. And to be fair, like, you know, just to play into the whole founder card here, like I did all the other stuff that everyone says, I, you know, I sold like candy at the lunch. I actually, I had like a loan shark operation at the, um, the lunch, lunch table as a middle schooler. I'd like loan out like 10 bucks and I charged like 10% interest a day. It was, <laughs> I did all that stuff. I think it really took a different turn, you know, in a serious way, um, a bit later. Yeah. But some good learnings along the way. So other than loaning money to kids, what other kind of things did you think of? I sold candies. So I'd buy the bulk pack and I'd sell them individually for a quarter. Uh, and then it allowed me to kind of buy the stuff I wanted to at lunch. And then kind of when I got older um, in, in high school, I actually had two companies that I started with friends. One was a, the iPad had just come out we built iPad cases. We were one of the first like companies to actually sell that. Um, but we never took it online. That was, uh, uh, I think actually a good parallel to today, like realized the opportunity online was a lot greater. And then we had a company called 
uh, Sprout products, which we built a compost bin for kind of urban homes, which didn't require um, you know a huge amount of upkeep, and it used this like particular method called Bokashi. Long story short, like we 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 that was I think senior year in high school, we launched like uh, Indiegogo, and like that was our first real kind of product, and we sold a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, I think I've always appreciated the idea of selling a physical product to someone and delivering kind of value in, in that way. Wait, what, so what happened to those two companies? Did you shut them down? I think we broke even. And then I was like, I really don't want to sell iPad cases anymore. So I basically broke even. We, we basically turned it into a nonprofit, donated all of it to Ronald McDonald House of Chicago. Um, so that was, again, extracurriculars trying to get into college. And then um, for the Sprout products, it's actually... It's still to this day, I think, a great idea. In fact, I think there's a couple of companies um, kind of taking on a much better and like much more polished approach to it, but but we just stopped selling it. That's when I had moved to San Francisco. I had to focus on kind of the actual like serious company that Keith, my, my old co-founder and I were building. So um, that one kind of just like petered away into non-existence, but I still get like wholesale inquiries about it once in a while, which is always fun, but that was 10 years ago. So what happened after high school, you started these businesses, then you went off to college? Yeah. And again, I, I play into a lot of stereotypes here. So just as you have the hard driving kind of immigrant kid um, or, or second generation immigrant kid, I think the college is, is also very stereotypical. I went to a small school called Babson um, over in the East Coast. Uh, it's right by, uh, it's in a small town called Wellesley. It's right outside of Boston. And, you know, during the weekends, this was around the heyday of, I think a, a lot of when the bar for entering startups was quite high, but then you also had a lot of these like golden children of, of, of the startup era. So like, you know, Evan Spiegel would come out to speak at MIT and you go be able to like meet them. Uh, Venmo just came out, like was really exciting. You know, Uber had a bunch of recruiting parties. So, and, and this was also, I think the time when hackathons were really like a serious thing. Whereas I think today's version of them are, are quite watered down. So I would start by kind of going to a lot of those. And that's how I kind of made my, or got my feet wet in, in the tech world. Um, and that's where you met a lot of kind of these companies that have either petered out and, and died or have become really big industry names today. So when I say stereotypical, what I mean is I took a leave of absence, actually. I, 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 and this is where those AP credits really came into being helpful because I entered with a tremendous amount of AP credits, which allowed me to basically graduate in like two-ish, two and a half years if I wanted to. So my way to pitch to my parents was like, hey, I don't want to graduate in two years. Let me go and take a maybe one semester off, find a job in San Francisco and, uh, and see what I can do there. So so wait, you could have finished college in two years and you didn't want to go or you did? I think I had the full intention of completing. So I completed my first year that summer, interned in Boston. That fall, I got an internship in, in San Francisco, moved out. And uh, and what really sealed the deal for me was three things kind of all happening at once. Um, one was uh, Keith and I started a company um, at the time called Onboard IQ. Today, it's known as Fountain. We, we worked on that day in, day out, like seriously grinded really, really hard on that for a couple months. We And this is back in the time when, it, in my opinion, at least like it wasn't so easy to raise money as it is today. And yeah, so we, we closed um, like a very small seed. We got into YC and then we, I personally got the deal fellowship as well, which formally as the requirement, you have to drop out. So that was kind of what allowed me to never return to that, that leave. 
what were some of the biggest lessons learned from that first startup that you had? I mean, YC is a huge, you know, one of the best accelerators in the world. Um, it sounds like you've had some incredible investors in that first startup. What were some of the biggest lessons learned? I think as a first time founder, there's so many things that just don't come naturally and you have to, or, or the, the common sense version, like is not actually true. And there's so much like bad, bad advice online that you really need to, to, to filter out like that to find your particular flavor of, of, you know, what works for you. So I think in the, in the short term, the most important one I, I would say above all is, you know, it's very hard. And this is true for not just startups, but just in, in life. Like when you're younger, your time horizon or perception of time is very different, even with like five years or 10 years. So if a startup or a company works, it's not like a two-year, three-year thing, you know, which by itself is actually basically three-fourths of college, you know, it's it's like a decade commitment. Um, it's a very serious, uh, very long-term commitment. And I think the, the most important thing that you can possibly do is, you know, either find an idea that you're personally excited about or build a team that you're personally really motivated to be with. And ideally, it's it's the combination of both, but either one of those two can really kind of make the other one sour very quickly. Unfortunately, you know, I, I'm very grateful, like Keith and I, you know, I mentioned we, we we weren't like long time childhood friends or anything. We met on a Facebook group and we just like kicked, hit it off really well and basically started working together the next day. But that normally doesn't happen. So we got lucky on the team side. The team to this day is still very close with a lot of the early employees there. But I think on the, um, the idea side, you know, Fountain is today an enterprise uh, hiring automation system. It's It's super, it's really not built for, selling to my earlier point, like selling a physical product and seeing immediate value. It's really like sales driven. It's, you know, the software we're building is for kind of not a huge group of people, but for a very specific kind of use case. And, and I think for me, you can trick yourself into thinking the first couple of years, oh, this is so fun. And it is fun. Like, you know, you're doing so many things for the first time. You're pitching uh, investors, you're meeting these like heroes of yours and, you know, uh, you're building the team and all of that is really exciting. But once you get to a point where you yourself are not doing every single thing and instead, let's say you're setting culture or you're hiring people and you're having to pitch this mission or, or vision that you personally are, are not that particularly excited in, that gets really exhausting very quickly. So I think the, the biggest lesson I, I have learned um, and I now take with me into Italic is like, hey, you really ought to, ideally, regardless of the idea, like you should find a team you really enjoy spending time with. And again, very grateful and lucky that that worked out for me and it fully could have, have not. But regardless of that, you should still also find something that you're personally excited about. I can't tell you how many founders out there who, you know, say this one thing, you know, say everything's so great. And then like behind closed doors or at a dinner, you're like, I hate my job. I hate my company. Like I want to get out and I'm stuck. <laughs> it's like a fallen chain. <laughs> exactly. And again, it's, it's a very serious, very large, very long commitment. So um, you want to be very clear about what you're spending time on. And then there's a whole lot of, you know, smaller ones that I think are, are helpful. It's very, very hard. I, I, I think the perception at the time we had was, you know, it's, it's uh, near impossible to uh, raise money at the time is like, you had to be an engineer, you had to have a co-founder, you had to like, blah, 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 you had to be a little bit older. And, uh, and, and at the time, like, I remember very clearly, there was the YC partner who told us like, Hey, we don't fund like deal flows. Okay. There was like this program, the deal fellowship, which required, it was like the 20 under 20 thing. And 
it's exactly like it sounds. It's, everyone is, is very young and it, the program itself has done phenomenally well. And by now, like so many of them have done YC, but you know, eight, nine years ago, and that was one of the like head honchos there, like to hear that you're like, okay, well, we don't have a shot here. Oh, wow. So they straight up were like, we don't fund Thiel fellows, like basically saying you guys are too young. Yeah. And and there's a lot of these things that like, you know, you, you realize with, with time, like, okay, it's always, it's never black and white like that. It's always like a little bit gray. One of the, those things for, for us that was really helpful was we had, we've had a couple kind of advisors or mentors who are just like champions of, of the business first and foremost, but more importantly, like of the founders and kind of took us under our wings. And I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I definitely have many times over where they really helped us kind of, um, or brought the, us into a circle that like was otherwise very hard to get into. We can also make the point around, like, that's also why it's so insular and like non-diverse, but regardless of, of that point, it did help me and Keith a lot in, in shortcutting and, and skipping through a lot of the, the pain that I think we otherwise would have needed to go through ourselves. Um, and, uh, and to this day, like we remain really good friends with them and, and actually one of them is now running the company for us. So, so he, uh, he, by all means is a much better he was basically playing uh, a founder now. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I think like hard and fast truisms that you hear in the industry, especially in tech and, and startups that you really got to kind of look one, kill the onion back a little bit and, and see like, is this actually true? Or, you know, are you just saying that as like, you know, a startup like advice that just to sound smart. So with Fountain being your first startup, before we kind of dive into Italic, which I'm really excited to do, when was a time when you failed or you made a massive mistake or, you know, what was one of those things that you did as a first time founder? I'm sure there's many, but what was kind of one of the bigger ones where you're like, oof, that was a big one. I think this did not work for us. And these were mistakes that we made, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it won't work for another company or, 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 or founder. So I, I just want to clarify, it's not like general universal. Two um, times I can directly point out was one, one was Keith and I launched basically three different side projects of the company. So our core company was like, we build SaaS, uh, you know, software, and that's what people use. That's what people pay for. That's how we grow the business. That's what the business depends on. And our job as the company should be to focus on building that product so that it's either, um, you know, expanding revenue with our existing clients or getting new clients on board and expanding with them. And by all accounts, like th those metrics were doing pretty well. But for whatever reason, we're like, okay, well, that's like doing its thing. Let's go and launch this like world-changing idea. The first one was called, this is right during the middle of YC. Like we launched one called Miley, uh, which lets you like text to get a job. We launched one called um, Purpose, which was like basically a gig job marketplace using our software underneath the hood. We had one called Common. A lo long story short, we had all these like little things that actually probably the most famous example of this is like Facebook, right? Like they launched Facebook, but at the time where the attention actually was and a lot of the gravity of the business, wherever the CEO spends time is ultimately where the company is like the actual spirit and, and attention is. They were working on, I think it's called like Wirehog or Wirepig or whatever. And it was like a, basically like a Dropbox type of product. We essentially ran that playbook like three times over. Didn't learn our lesson the first time, not the second time, but the third time we were finally like, okay, like, we should probably just get back to what makes the business run in the first place and make the core product very, very, very good and into a stable place before we have the budget or the time or the bandwidth to you know, go and play essentially a, a new 
moonshots per se. I think in order to do a moonshot, you're either like doing the moonshot or you need to like figure out the core first. So I think that was you know a hard lesson learned. And even to this day, it's very, very hard to do because it essentially means there's this notion of like focus and cutting distractions, but in actuality, like focusing inherently means you are choosing to do one thing and you're choosing not to do another thing. Not, you can't focus on like 20 different things at once. So, um, and as, as first time founders, like, oh, I, there's this shiny thing. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. But like, actually the, the real value of a strategy isn't to constantly re-strategize. And we can get into this later about like I tell it, cause I definitely you know, made the same mistake many times, but um, it's to take that strategy and execute it day in, day out for a long period of time. And, and that's, I think really where the value of the strategy is uh, realized. So yeah, those are just a couple of the kind of mistakes we, we, we made. I can share a whole lot more like sales and, and fundraising and, and whatnot, but from a conceptual level, I think that was one of our bigger ones. And now we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D dot I-O slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand Outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience Outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So talk to me about Italic. How did you come up with the idea? And when did you realize, okay, this is something that I want to devote long-term to, right? Because it sounds like 
you like to do new things. You probably get really excited about new ideas and then you see something else and you're like, oh, that's a cool idea too. I want to do that. <laughs> so how did you know that this was kind of the next thing that you wanted to really focus on? The two go hand in hand. Where the founder spends time is where the gravity of the business is pulled towards. So wherever, if, and just think of like, if you're an employee, and you see your boss, your founder, like doing one thing, naturally, you're going to try to help them or, or kind of want to work on that because you're going to assume that's where the most important you know, work is being done or the most fun work is being done. So where the founder chooses to spend time and also how they communicate it is, is really important. And then kind of the second note there is like, well, if you choose to spend time on the wrong thing, then like it's hugely impactful, not just for you because you're not a one person team, but for the rest of the organization, especially as you get bigger. So with Italic, and this is kind of how it translates there, like with Italic, I think the two um, circumstances that I think birthed the, the company really was um, on one hand, um, I really, so I, by this time, you know, I, I was already transitioned out of Fountain um, very gracefully and, and, and you know, um, still on great terms with, with the, the company there, but really it was more so just from a standpoint of like, hey, I want to do something I'm personally excited about. So on one side, I really wanted to find an idea um, that I could work on for a long time and, and resonated, you know, head close to home. I can get into that. And then the second one was fundraising environment. You know, this is a time when it was a very different period where money was a lot more available to people like me than the first time around. So um, it was not so risky as it was when Keith and I were burning credit card and getting into debt to, to start a fountain. So the first one I would say is the more important one. Um, my family has been in manufacturing for a really long time, you know, decades. And, uh, and if you think about manufacturing um, as a business, it's one of the biggest industries in the world, but one, it's hugely commoditized. Any single manufacturing uh, category typically has many, many, many players. So naturally, the competition is very high and the cost, the margin that um, they're able to, to, to capture is typically quite low because it's not defensible from a IP perspective or you know um, service provided pers perspective. And it's really different clients starting to shop around, um, which naturally drives the price lower for everyone. So on one hand, the longer you work in manufacturing, the more you wonder like, hey, I'm producing these like finished goods for someone to buy from me and sell for five, 10 times what I sold it to them for. So manufacturer margin is typically like 15 to 20%. Sometimes you might see it to 25, 30% and like you know, really premium uh, or differentiated products. But for the most part, that's industry-wide, geography-wide. You know, if you're selling a product, let's say this, you know, sweatshirt for $16 and someone buys it from you for 16, you made, let's say 25%, let's be generous there. I take them $4 on a $16 sale, but they might actually end up selling that thing for not $16, but 60, 70, 80, 90, $100. And on a $100 sale, you know, you're losing, you're missing out on what is basically 84, you know, many, many, many times your own margin. The idea with Italic was, you know, Uber and Airbnb had really scaled at that point. And, um, and the interesting thing about them were they never take any inventory risk of their own. You know, the famous you know, uh, narrative is like Uber doesn't, it's the biggest taxi company in the world, doesn't have any taxis. Airbnb's biggest hotel company in the world, doesn't have any hotels. I think in, in the Italic model, we really took inspiration from that. So we don't actually buy inventory for, uh, and it's a strategic reason. One is so that it directly solves that issue that the manufacturer has. Um, it's to increase their yield on existing production capacity. So in that same example, 
what if you made $8 or, or $16 per unit instead of $4? That really, it doesn't make a big difference to the consumer, but it's a huge difference to the manufacturer if they take inventory risk. Um, and then secondly, if you don't need to buy inventory and sell it at a markup to make money, um, you can set prices a whole lot lower than the brands do because you're not taking inventory risk or capital. You're not locking capital in the front in the form of inventory. So, so the prices can be quite competitive. So on that front, this was an idea that I felt like, you know, checks a lot of boxes, has personal uh, reasons. It's it's something that I could work on for a really long time. It's a really hard problem. It's a really large market. There are tech components to it that really build um, a moat. So, and and I think from a skill set perspective, um, I felt like I was uniquely positioned to to do a good job in. So, that's how I think I got over that first um, group. And then in terms of the financing side, like this is also not a cheap business because unlike a brand where you know you can essentially have an idea, brand it, order product and then get going, like there's a whole lot of upfront uh, uh, business development work that you have to do, sourcing work, product development work, and software that you have to build before you can ship a single item. So Italic at least like really came from that pool of the time, the, fin um, the financing environment. And I think most importantly, the idea of being exciting. Did you partner with your mom's manufacturing business? No. <laughs> so they do industrials. No. I would be like, that's the lowest hanging fruit, isn't it? It was helpful for sure. Um, manufacturing is also a fairly small world. Well, why wouldn't you work with your mom? <laughs> well, they, they aren't, um, they don't produce like consumer goods. So that's the main reason. Oh, it's a different type of manufacturer. I see. But there's a lot of founders out there that do. So, you know, I know you interview a whole bunch of consumer founders. Like um, there's a lot of these like ones where I, I'm sure part of it was like, oh, how do I like help my family, you know, do better? And this is kind of, uh, I can't help directly in that sense because it's, you know, it's a, it's a different type of model, but yeah, it was definitely inspired. And then of course the networks are, are small. So definitely helped in terms of connecting us to the right people and speaking the same language, both like literally the same language as well as like industry and business terminology, the same language. I know that you guys started out with a membership model, but you recently kind of pulled back on that. So I'd love to hear your thought process on, you know, starting out with that kind of subscription piece and then why you kind of chose to shut it down, stop it, kind of whatever you kind of call it. Yeah. The uh, Well, to be clear, it, it continues to this day. Um, we still have a membership, but instead of it being a prerequisite to purchase, it's an upsell. So it's an upgrade to the shopping experience. So there's really two reasons for this. And I have like, you know, I have the press answer and I have like the real answer. I'll give you both because the press answer is also true. The press answer is actually very, it, it's, it's essentially in order for us to set the prices that we wanted to in the market, which typically range between 80 to uh, 58 to 80% less than comparable you know, uh, products on the same cost of goods um, basis. So if a product costs $20 to make, we might sell that for, you know, let's say 30 bucks. And then our competitor would probably sell it between 60 or, or, or 90 bucks. So that's how we wanted to, to price. And in order to set those prices and still be solvent as a business, we had to charge a membership fee upfront, which gave us the margin to, you know, essentially sell you products and not have to make money on that. What ended up happening was as our membership base and customer base, and most importantly, our order volume grew, we started generating and this is how manufacturing works, you know, the cost per unit, you see literal economies of scale, the cost per unit starts dropping. And it dropped to a point where we basically got to a point where we no longer needed to charge the membership fee to make money. And it also felt 
dishonest to say, hey, we're selling you this at cost because we're not. And it's also at a price point that we felt like was very competitive um, and any lower actually might tarnish the, the perception of the product. So from a business standpoint and financial standpoint, we basically didn't need it anymore. And instead we could frame it as an upsell, which is what it is today. The, the non-press answer is, is actually a little bit more nuanced, but we really think of Italic as a flywheel. The more customers we have, the more leverage we have to bring on new manufacturers, the more manufacturers and the more leverage we have with them, the more products we can offer um, and stock deeper, you know, therefore, you know, running that flywheel faster and tighter. And really we want to do anything we can to both tighten and, and um, speed up that that uh, flywheel. And also it's our moat. So I think on, on the customer standpoint, um, we really were kind of shooting ourselves in the foot by saying, hey, in order to purchase from us, you have to be a member. It really limits the total um, you know, number of people who would end up trying Italic, which I think was a disservice to the manufacturers because we actually were developing what I thought were great products. So by opening the floodgates a little bit, it allows for more volume to be driven to the manufacturers and therefore a better relationship, more products and therefore more customers. So that's one part of it. The other part was, you know, in a day of an age of endless subscription products, what we were offering was was a pretty hard sell, which is, hey, you have to, it's not like Netflix or, or Spotify where the subscription is the product. It's it's kind of like a, a, a paywall where you have to pay twice, you have to pay for the membership, and then you have to pay again for the product. So what we felt like was a more natural fit or natural shopping experience and where we don't have to re-educate the customer whatsoever on a different behavior was buy this product, which we think is excellent value. If you see value in it, you know, come back by again, or you can become a member and save more money. So really that's the, the underlying kind of reason for it. There's a whole lot more kind of on, on the financial level or technical level or product level that um, I could probably get into. Um, you know, for example, our product line doesn't necessarily lend well to frequency. You know, you don't buy cookware every day. You don't buy a cashmere sweater every day. From a software level, we were moving to a custom platform that we built from scratch. And that was a multi-year journey. And we finally kind of had it coincide with the launch of the, the um, non-member experience. Um, from a financial level, we raised our B and we were able to actively take down our margins actually um, when we dropped the membership. But we actually, again, wanted to do that so that we could expose more people to, to the brand. So that's a lot of the rationale, but really the strategic point is mostly one, we could afford to do so. And two, um, it allows us to get more customers on board. Yeah. Your website is so interesting. Cause I love that you have like same manufacturer ads and you actually list the brands. And so you've got like women's apparel from using the same manufacturer as Alexander Wang items in the home category, using the same manufacturers as Pottery Barn, Ritz Carlton and the Four Seasons. And then a load of amazing luxury brands that are, you know, have sunglasses and bags and jewelry from the same manufacturer there as well. I find that so fascinating to see those brands kind of listed on your website. And then you even have, which I think is compelling too, like a price analysis on the product where it says, here's your price for metallic. And then you have like two other, maybe three other companies that are creating almost like the identical product. And, you know, you can see the price savings right in front of you on every item, every product page. Yeah. So the, the value proposition for Italic really is um, uh, very straightforward, which is we want to offer the same quality um, and same level of kind of design as these great brands, but at a much, much 
you know, more value-driven price point. It's not that we're never going to be the cheapest in the market. We're also not going to be the default purchase in the market. So if you want to buy like the XYZ brand handbag or, or you know, whatever it is, um, product, like we will never be able to kind of beat that. But what we want to be is like a default value option where you know you're getting excellent luxury grade quality, but at a price point that not so many people would have access to. And that's actually the the, the kind of, kind of industry secret, which is when you go and audit these factories, whether you're from one of these big brands or, or Italic or whatever it is, you see your product right next to all of your competitors and you know what they sell it for and you know what you sell it for. Sometimes you sell it for a whole lot more. Sometimes you sell it for a whole lot less. And, and really the, the customer never sees that. But on the flip side, the customer today is a whole lot more informed than ever before. So when we're able to educate or provide information in terms of helping them make the purchase decision that orients it around value, you know, and again, if you're going to buy the branded item, you're going to buy the branded item. It doesn't matter what we do. But if you if you want this specific product um, and you care about the quality and you also care uh, about getting a really good deal, like, hey, Italic does very, very well um, in that regard. And it's different for different people too. So what we're really doing is like, kind of exposing, not a secret, but it's like a very, very well-known. <laughs> no, you guys are going for the jugular for sure. Like it's, you're going right for the jugular. It's hilarious. I think it's awesome. I mean, because when I think of, you know, D to C and Everlane, I guess like kind of direct to consumer brands where we're like, we're so transparent. Right. And now you're just, <laughs> This is like a whole nother level direct from manufacturer, but really in such a unique way. I'm, I'm just so curious how you guys kind of, what, was, what that meeting was like and who came up with the idea to say, hey, guys, what if we did this and we put, you know, a whole price analysis on every product page and even put the names of the other competing companies and those, pro you know, I mean, who, when did that happen? What was that meeting like? And who you're like, yes, let's do it. Or was that your idea? That was always day one. Um, I, I think it's just a widely known you know, thing that happens in the industry. And I thought like, oh, how cool would it be for the us to expose that to the customer? Well, what do you mean widely exposed? It's like, I've only seen a price analysis on like a pitch deck, right? Like, oh, okay. Price analysis is different. Yeah, that's true. I think you can take it in, in two ways. On the price analysis side, if you ever work in, in SaaS or tech, like, you know, there's comparison pages. You search for a product, and it's like X versus Y. On the retail world, people have been doing this for, for many years as well. It's, it's typically in-store, right? So you have this really high, actually, private labels are the best example. You literally have a, a brand that you yourself wholesale and have a good relationship with. You dupe that product, you put your version right next to it, and you're implying that it's the exact same, but you're selling yours for like 30%, 40% less, you know? Actually, that's a, one of the fastest growing segments in um, in offline retail. What you have as well in the midst of, of all this is a lot of what we call comparative um, marketing. Um, you know, Coke and Pepsi, of course, famously have been doing this for many years. Everyone has seen those TV commercials um, growing up where it's like, it's compared to XYZ. And it's again, implicit, but it's not. Uh, uh, and it has to be like backed by kind of some level of, of um, you know, justification there. But uh, I think we're just amping it to the next level on, on a product display page, which isn't so common. It's not common. I haven't seen this before. I think it's brilliant, but, <laughs> but I think it's, it's just hilarious because I've never seen it before. And it's um, very compelling. I imagine it's been quite useful in um, conversion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think um, you, you brought up like Everlane, for example, and, and I know you've had a whole lot of direct to consumer brands and, and probably people in the audience like are, are, are 
many of them operate these types of brands. I think really like what we're making the statement of is there's two types of purchasing behavior out there. You're either buying something for the brand, in which case it's the story, it's the, you know, whatever it is like, and you're going to make money on margin. And then in our case, we're trying to make money on volume and commission and, and driving that volume to our manufacturers. But really it's like a rational purchase, which is, okay, I'm going to optimize for, you know, the best possible price quality, whatever it is, but like brand name isn't so important to me um, as is like that um, justification. And this is where you see like, a good example is like on Wirecutter, for example, or Strategist, like there's a whole bunch of these um, rewet websites, like high-end fashion will never end up there or do well there because like it's so brand-driven, it's design-driven and, you know, uh, trend-driven and logo-driven compared to like bedsheets or cookware, which is a whole lot less in your face about that. So that's kind of why we felt like just treating the customer as intelligent and, and overloading them with information as opposed to like keeping that away from them is helpful. But again, if you're, if you're a brand founder, like we don't really compete with you. It's actually more so your customer is going to buy from you and our customer is probably not going to buy from you just from that standpoint. I'm just curious, how'd you come up with the name Italic and Italic.com? How expensive was it? It's, it's, <laughs> I feel like it's got to be so expensive to buy that domain. <laughs> So I have same thing. I have a PR answer and a and a real answer. Real answers only. <laughs> no, 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 the PR is pretty cool. It, the name Italic is is uh, is kind of cool because the typeface was invented in like the 1400s, um, and it was uh, patented by the Papal States. So only they and they alone could use it. And then there was a German printmaker who went and um, and essentially like built their own version of it and distributed it to the rest of Europe. And it became like the very, very popular, you know, uh, style that it is today. So in the same vein, we wanted to take something that's limited and very exclusive to the particular few and democratize that across the board and specifically with like luxury essentials. Um, that's the PR answer. And it's true. You can look it up. The The real answer is, is um, I had like, so I had the domain italic.io for like many, many years. I thought it was such a good name. And, um, and I tried to come up with like literally a hundred plus me, my sister, my mom, like we, we went through so many different names. And at the end, we kind of kept going back to the name italic. We had like all sorts of stuff. We had like my favorite was uh, we almost called it fat cat. So um, <laughs> I, <laughs> You almost called this business Fat Cat? Yeah. Wow, I, I can't know, even imagine now what the brand would look like. Totally different branding than you have now. Very different. Yeah. Um, maybe for better or worse, who, who knows? But uh, but yeah, we, we, we essentially negotiated with uh, the guy who, who had the domain, he'd, he'd sat on it for like 20, 30 years. It's not, and, and there's a whole lot of ways to like do this, so you know, the way I did it, it's not necessarily like the right way, but for us, like we used a domain broker. I've also tried the student card, didn't get any more of that. So, and ended up purchasing it. It wasn't, I won't disclose the price here, but like, it wasn't as much as you'd expect. It's always worth asking. How many digits? Well, it's definitely six figures. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> oh my God. Six figure domain. Okay. But uh, compared to some of the numbers out there, it's not as bad as some of the other ones I've heard. But yeah, so that's kind of how the name came about. We got very lucky and, and I think very happy with, with uh, the name right now. But you almost called the company Fat Cat. That was one of the options, yes. <laughs> That's so funny, Fat Cat. I just can't even imagine this brand being called Fat Cat because it's it's like such a luxury appeal. And I think Fat Cat is yeah. kind of like the total opposite of luxury. The opposite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
So talk to me about fundraising. You guys have raised, I think, north of $50 million. That's an incredible amount of money. Um, what has the fundraising process been like for you? Um, and what are some of the takeaways and learnings and advice that you'd have for founders looking to raise? So I, I came into Italic like, with the benefit of having a bit of a track record um, for raising and, and having built a company before, which obviously kind of de-risks a lot of the investor um, diligence side. But at the same time, you know, this is in retail, which for if we've learned anything from all of our competition and peers out there is very, very, very hard to build a venture scale outcome in. And most of the, the exits have been sub venture. So, you know, I think, and, and even to this day, if anything, it's actually gotten worse. So, um, you know, it's been an, a, a bit of an interesting journey because all I've known prior to this was how to raise for SaaS. Yeah, which is totally different. What, 10x plus, it's like 30x I've seen valuations these, these days. Well, last year, you, you've seen some 100x's, even in the public markets, which are now compressed you know, substantially. Now that's more like maybe. When, when we were kind of going out, it was, um, it was 10 to 20 was like on the high end um, back in like that era. And, and now like you wouldn't, be cut dead now. Like you'd never find that. For SaaS valuations, it's just like insane. So how do you go from having a network of tech SaaS specifically investors to saying, hey guys, guess what? I'm going to do a retail business and there's tech too, but it's still retail. I mean, that's probably pretty tough. That's a tough sell, I think, to that audience. Most firms nowadays are, are generalist. Um, you know, you have like very niche category specific funds, but for the most part, the, the, the big guys and small guys are, are all, you know, we will invest in whatever it is and we don't take a prescriptive approach. There are a lot of, you know, pattern matching um, uh, behaviors that will happen, right? So if I've invested in a retail company that let's say it didn't pan out, you know, you're probably not going to do it again many times. Um, but on the flip side, if you if you um, are, are have approached the problem with like clear eyes and, and first principles, like hey, like maybe this is actually a great idea. So, I think from a from a fund perspective, we have a lot of I tell and founders share a lot of uh, funds and, and angels. Most of it again is, is founder based. So if you trust me, like hopefully you trust that I'm building a good company for you. Um, but on the flip side, there's a lot where it's thesis driven and like hey, I really am focused on this specific sector. Maybe my partner. Um, um, that the fund can can um, you know take a look or whatnot, and that's fine too. So, from a crossover perspective, it hasn't been that hard. But I think on a more broad spectrum, like the 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 main, I would say the main tailwind that we've had over the past couple of years is um, we finally seen how big this business can get. A couple of years ago, very, almost no investor in the West would have known about like Pinduoduo or Xi'an or, or or what have you. So on the Asian ecosystem, like they are really, really, really big companies, like bigger than most of the companies, most of the private companies here. And they are in retail and they've driven like more than venture you know, returns. But on the flip side, the Western ecosystem, like you've almost seen like none of that happen over the past 10 years. So um, we kind of have to play into that a little bit. And then in terms of the tech uh, enablement, I mean, we've seen a lot of, uh, you can Google like any of the darlings of the past decade of, of DTC and, and, you know, a lot of them have crashed and burned and, and the whole narrative, the press narrative there was like, oh, they tried to say that they were a tech company. Um, and in reality, they were like a brand or a retail company. Ha ha. Like so bad. Why, why would you do that? Blah, blah. Like, but yeah, if you're playing the game, like, of course you're going to see your tech company. Like when, when you can raise as a tech company, like, and you, I always feel like it's, um, 
if you're sharing like an accurate picture of the company, it's up to the investor whether they decided to invest or not and do their diligence. It wasn't because you sold them a false you know, narrative. If you were, that's a whole different story. But playing the game in retail is, means you have to find some angle that is uniquely differentiating yourself from the others, whether that's from a supply side or an acquisition side. And the reality is like everyone's saying the same thing, just different versions of it. You know, some people say like, oh, we monetize on influencer or community really well. But like, honestly, everyone does. Everyone does influencer and community. It's not like one particular version. But if you're saying that's your niche, like you better be really good at it. Um, and our play on it was like, we have this very unique supply approach, which differentiates us from our competitors. For others, it might be IP. Others, it could just be brand too. Like there's actually nothing wrong with that. So, but it, I will say from experience, most investors have been burned on investing in brands. So there's that reality too. Well, they get burned by a lot of different things, right? It's, I feel like it comes with the job. Like most of your portfolio is probably not going to do well. It's what that, you know, eight out of 10 rule. But I guess I like what you said. You said something about um, when you're talking to investors that they trust that you'll build a good company for them. And that was funny how you said for for you is how you were saying it. Um, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs think they're building a business for themselves in a way. Like they're doing something that they love to do. That's how you should think about it. That's for sure the right way. <laughs> so I should probably clarify that. <laughs> no, but it, it is interesting because it just shows that you realize, and the truth is entrepreneurs with investors are creating value for their shareholders, right? And I think that's like the unglamorous way of talking about like the reality of fundraising actually and what it means to actually have, have investors. You really have four stakeholders I, I found and like anyone else outside of that ecosystem does not really matter. Um, and I'm just being very blunt about it. The only like the first buy one of our values at Italic and arguably our most important value is service culture. And what that specifically means is we serve four, four groups. Um, really, it's actually we explicitly say three, but the fourth is implicit. We serve our customers. That's who matters most. We serve our merchants. In our case, that's a unique one, but you can also loop that under customers because you know we're building software for them. We serve the, the team. And then that's almost universal for uh, any startup out there. So you have your customers and you have your team. The two that like you won't really talk about is of course you serve yourself. Like you're a founder, you, you own the majority of the company, like, or you're the biggest shareholder, I hope. Like you are doing this hopefully with a good financial outcome as well even though you probably won't talk about it very much. And then lastly, of course, you're also serving your investors. Like whether you like it or not, like if you have board members or you don't, like they're going to ask for updates, you know, they gave you money, so you better do something with it too. It's not your money. So inevitably, you know, decision-making shouldn't be driven. It should be driven by customers first and foremost. And I think by, by all accounts, like you should also serve your employee before you serve yourself. But at the end of the day, like, who really matters in terms of the decision. It's those four in that order. So when I say like you're building the company for investors, like, of course, that's a component that you have to weigh into whether you like it or not, or you explicitly have that relationship with your investors or not. Um, I think it's different people have different approaches. Because they're investing in you. They might like you and they probably believe in you, but actually they really just want to make money. Like most of them, they're, they're in it. They invest because they're hoping that they're placing a good bet on the right horse to make money. And so that's like, I think that's the tough thing, right? Because when you're fundraising and you're putting your all out there and you're trying to build these relationships and stuff like that, I mean, of course there's nice people, but 
it's kind of like this mixed thing of like, I want to believe that they believe in me and they like me and all this stuff, but actually they're just trying to make money for their job so they could keep it, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's better to frame it as once the financial obligation is gone, then you can be, then, then it's like the whole Buffett saying of like, when the beach goes out, who's naked, like, then you know who your friend, like actual friends are or um, when the exits happen or when a lot of investors leave funds, like so many people have left and started their own funds nowadays. I've experienced that many, many times. So when that happens, like, hey, are you gonna actually still like bring your A game or are you like done? Um, that's fine too. Like it's, uh, you know, it's different. <laughs> it's dealing with people. Absolutely. So before we kind of wrap up here, what's some kind of final advice that you have for entrepreneurs, whether it's fundraising or just starting a business, going through really tough times, what advice do you have? One is, I, I think there's this notion in the ecosystem that like culture is this fuzzy thing that like you hold hands and kind of come up with together. But like, that's not what it really is. It's, it's helpful to have it written down, but it's more so like the sooner you are explicit about it and make it black and white, the more impactful it is on your organization, both from a recruiting standpoint, your big, the biggest impact of all is on recruiting. Whoever you bring into the organization is what the organization is, is, is going to become. Uh, and when you're small, it's like more important than ever that you're bringing in like people who fit the cultural kind of value set and are, if you, and a lot of companies aren't mission driven, that's actually fine too. Like if you are mission driven though, like, Hey, is this person, you know? So I, I think, um, a lot of founders, both first time and second time, would be better suited to really being mindful and deliberate about setting that in stone earlier in their company than later. And I don't mean it as like, we want to be fair or we want to be like, have integrity. Like every company in the world wants that. It's more like, do we work super hard or is this like lifestyle? Do, uh, do I tell you like how I really feel uh, and like deliver critical feedback that way? Um, or do I like hold it back? Or, you know, do we hire assholes? Like a lot of companies will do it. We don't, but that's, that's our choice. You know, I, I think it's, it's those things that are very important to kind of try to knock down early before. Um, so you're prepared by the time that it, it comes and, and every company will, will go through that. The second one is make sure you are working on what is important because that doesn't really change. The heart of the business rarely changes. Of course, you'll hear the like occasional success story, like a Slack or what, what have you, but more often than not, that doesn't change. And it's important that you set the right North star. Going back to an earlier point, like strategy is actually not the most important thing. It's actually execution. Um, it's the execution that makes the strategy successful, not the strategy itself. So, you know, make sure you're grinding towards the, the right thing. And then I think the, 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 the last one is I don't enjoy that much social interaction. I really don't like thrive in, in that regard and, and much more considers myself like much more reclusive and introverted. But when you're getting going, your network is everything. And I don't mean like the transactional network of like, hey, let's go like meet, a, meet for coffee so I can sell you my software, but more like, hey, try to find an ecosystem of peers or people who are a little bit, um, a couple of years later down and like, Try to become genuine, you know, find, sort through a lot of them, but like find people who are there for you. Cause it's a very lonely job. You know, it's, it's a, uh, you could say whatever, like, oh, I'm super transparent and, and all that. But like at the end of the day, an investor is an investor an employee is an employee. A lot of companies say they're families. Like, are you family when you have to fire 
someone? Like, no, you're not. So um, I, I think being very explicit about the relationships there, but then on the flip side, like finding external peers and, and mentors, like it's really, really valuable um, and goes a long way, especially not from like the hard help you run your business type of thing, but more so just like as a support group. So um, those are just three universal recommendations I think are true for almost every founder um, that I think are are harder. You won't find that many people saying that online, but I think it's, it's almost always true. That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing those three important points. Um, those are super helpful. Thank you so much for sharing your story and joining me on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.